Are you ready to begin? I am. Hey, this is Sad Girl Syllabus, a commentary on media through the ages. Each season, we'll have a new syllabus to dive into. I'm Bethany. I'm Mary. We are two girls. Too sad. <laughs> Let's jump into the syllabus. <laughs> cool. Today we are talking, we're still in season one, Gothic Lit, but we have moved on to, from Wuthering Heights to Dracula. And how did we make this leap? Yeah, it's about um, 50 years uh, of time between the publication of <laughs> um, Wuthering Heights to Dracula and very different for Gothic Lit. Um, but at the same time, I think we're like, they're kindred spirits. Very different books though, especially in terms of monsters and uh, themes yeah. at the same time. Gothic literature in the Bronte, uh, in, in the Bronte realm is very much um, atmospheric. It's taking, what makes it Gothic is mm -hmm. the, uh, dreary weather and like old huge houses wealthy men and like you don't know if there's like ghosts you don't know if there's um monsters or spirits lurking um but there's uh romance and then you get into the gothic literature of Bram Stoker and like late 19th century and sort of I guess post-industrial revolution mm -hmm. Um, officially, I guess. And that's when monsters come into it. And I think, um, I think, but there's still romance. Now it's just romance with monsters, <laughs> whether that be ghosts or <laughs> like, or like Frankenstein or, um, or vampires. And I think that the monsters are coming out of, um, are coming out of new scientific discoveries that are happening in the 19th century. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. And you definitely see um, also like fears of, definitely some Orientalism fears of like immigration and um, of, of general, like England is changing at, at, at the turn of the century in Dracula, because um, it's, yeah, published in 1897, so you're right at the cusp. Um, and definitely, uh, I feel like the monster is much more obviously fleshed out in Dracula than it is in Wuthering Heights. It's it's uh, much more central that you have uh, a picture of monstrosity or of, of the, the evil uh, versus Wuthering Heights where the evil is so like, yeah, it's part of the, not even evil, but just like misery, I guess, is kind of part of the terrain and part of the atmosphere. And uh, Dracula is like the foreign influence coming through. <laughs> um, there's also some level of, uh, so you were talking about, um, the similarities between uh, it, like in these two books in Wuthering Heights and, and Dracula and therefore in like the sort of vibey um, aspects of, of these like two types of Gothic lit and like the similarity you have also in Dracula, we talked about a lot about the narrator in the Wuthering Heights mm -hmm. episode and, um, and like this sad boy narrator <laughs> theme <laughs> that's like, has not been talked about. I have not seen any scholarly articles about the sad boy narrator. Uh, <laughs> maybe there are I know. some. <laughs> I will, cause sometimes I'm like, who fits? Like, I know we talked about, and I don't want to get off the point. Um, we talked a bit about Greg Gatsby and I think he's definitely sad boy. It's like, is Holden Caulfield a sad boy narrator? Not really, because he's yeah. too active, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's just antagonistic narrator. 
<laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, the, who is the sad boy narrator? I have not, I haven't heard. Where are these scholars? Yeah. <laughs> On an SGB. That's what sad girl syllabus is for. Uh, <laughs> to also investigate the sad boys. Um, but in Dracula, Jonathan Harker, of course, it's it's written from the perspective of the diaries of the characters, Nina and Jonathan. Um, does Lucy have a diary or is she just being talked about? No, she's just okay. being, she has letters to Mina. Right, okay. Um, no diary. Yeah, yeah, it's mostly Jonathan, Mina's diary, some Van Helsing letters between, and then there's also like some newspaper articles and like right. a ship's log. And so you see also, you know, mayhem around London. Yeah, um, so there's no, there's no definite, um, like narrator throughout. However, there is this, um, the story is still being told from like a third person sort of. Yeah, it's kind, kind of a collage. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah you get, yeah. You get both sort of, a, sort of omnipresent because you're getting all of these perspectives. And at the same time, I think you get very clear ideas of different characters. So like you really understand who Mina is. I think you really get that Jonathan will always be polite. <laughs> it's like, I feel like that's the defining characteristic of Jonathan. <laughs> um, so you get like some characterization, you get it from their perspective, um, but at the same time you get all of these perspectives. So it kind of comes yeah. um, omniscient a little bit. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Well, and, and um diary perspectives and literature written from from diaries is always interesting to me because I'm always kind of like wait is this like a it feels like it straddles um like first person and third person a lot of the time because you do get the story being told but it's also like and and Dracula is interesting that it's that it's two different people's diaries or three different people some of the mm -hmm. time and um and so then yeah, as you said, you really get to understand who Mina is, who Jonathan is, and you, um, and so that explores the atmosphere or the vibes of the whole, of the whole situation. Also, I think that it um, maybe is necessary because it's taking place across uh, geographic boundaries, like part of it is happening in Transylvania, part of it is happening in London, you sort of need the story from both uh, gothic literature because it is so much about the atmosphere and the vibes of like place and it feels site specific I guess you would need to have these multiple narrators who are um, coming in from like talking about dreary London talking about the mm -hmm. crazy castle I also think there's an sort of interesting element of suspense between with letters and with diaries that we know are like being transcribed like Mina transcribes Jonathan's diary so it's like you know, they compile all of these texts. That's how the book ends, right? Like this is a com compilation of all of these texts because we didn't have any other documents to record, you know, what happened with Dracula. Um, so that's their defense of the novel. But I think because you have letters, and I think actually this is only a modern perspective, like only contemporary perspective would say this, it adds an interesting element of suspense for me because, um, I keep thinking like, oh my God, what's gonna happen in between these letters? Like you guys are gonna miss something, like something big's gonna be happening in London when you're in Transylvania. Like you're gonna conflict with each other because your letters aren't gonna get to each other in time. So because there's like a gap in correspondence, <laughs> to me, I'm like, oh, what's, what's going on? Versus I think normally suspense nowadays, at least is built a lot on sort of a first person narrator or a close third. Um, that has someone who doesn't have all the facts, doesn't know what's going about to happen in in the moment of uh, of conflict, like in the moment of intense struggle. And most of these are after something has happened. They're writing a letter, um, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to Mina, to Jonathan, you know, back and forth. And um, isn't that sort post of yeah? Isn't that sort of that's kind of how the whole story uh begins is with like this miscommunication because like dracula when he's alive in mm -hmm. medieval times um doesn't uh he he's thought to be dead from war and the message is the message is relayed to 
uh, his lover, his wife, Elizabeth. Right? Is that just, that's the book adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's like in lore and then like the Coppola version of the movie yeah. is like, okay, we take this little bit and then like pff, explode yeah. it. Like, and yeah. it's not quite so big. Like, I think Dracula in the book is a little more mis. You don't really know his motives. Again, this okay, is kind yeah. of like what we were going back to, like, besides the, like, the bloodthirsty, <laughs> like, besides the, the monster motives, um, there's not that, he's mysterious. He's yeah, which definitely is into Mina, definitely seems to be like, there's a hint of a past. Um, he also seems to kind of be into Jonathan. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and definitely into, you know, he's a sexual creature, I guess. Um, yeah. He, he's, yeah. That's the uh, other thing. All the words are escaping me. The other thing about uh, what the similarities between these two books is, um, is the main character, the sort of like brooding Byronic hero um, which, like, I don't think that Dracula is necessarily a Byronic hero, but but he has some aspects mm -hmm. of it, and it's, like, brooding and mysterious, and, like, you'll never hear the story sort of from his perspective. And and people right. are always going to be... The, the People are always going to be talking about him. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you want to assign him motive, you want to assign him a past, a reason, even though it's very clear that he is a vampire. <laughs> and that is right. And that, but what's interesting about that is like sort of the, um, I mean, that's like sort of a reader participation thing. I think, I mean, I know that like mm -hmm. death of the author is allegedly a postmodern thing, but, um, but that is very much with these Byronic heroes and them being only talked about and not necessarily having a grasp on their history or not necessarily having a grasp on their true feelings. The reader is mm -hmm. like the person who is um, coming to conclusions or having to draw conclusions alongside the characters who are narrating. Yeah, I think there's a lot left unsaid or refused to be said. There's just so much subtext. Um, and I also think, you know, like there's just like questions that I think a gothic novel is never going to answer a little bit. Like, why is Dracula, why does he want to go to London? Because it's a metropolis or, you know, like, you're just like, why? Yeah. What's the purpose? Um, but he does. <laughs> I like, do we want to do any plots in that, like, plot description? Or I think it's a pretty known story that it's like, Jonathan Harker gets trapped at Dracula's castle. Dracula goes to London, wreaks havoc on this uh, on London, and then particularly a small group of people. Van Helsing comes in um, to help with the process, and they eventually go back to Transylvania, where through multiple people's sacrifices, they kill Dracula. <laughs> and <laughs> there's also this the romance yeah. element of it yes. is. Um, yeah. Dracula uh, becomes increasingly obsessed with Mina, Jonathan Harker's fiance, and uh, and it's because there's sort of like this sense of like past life connection between the two, mm -hmm. or like she bears a resemblance to his wife when he was when he was still mortal, when Dracula was still mortal, um, and so he's like after Mina and. Um, and, and yeah, and then there's also Lucy and her subplot. Um, right. She is Lucy is the, the friend of Mina, um, right? Who has um, three men who are desperately in love with her, and one she finally chooses as fiance. <laughs> um, but yeah, who then is also uh, bitten by Dracula and um, eventually becomes sort of a vampire. Um, right she becomes incredibly ill and there's yeah. the drama around Lucy is that she um dies of her of her infection mm -hmm. and there's also this like uh well I I know that you wanted to talk about um this 
about Bram Stoker himself. Um, oh yeah. But then do you want to go, should we go to this subject of disease? Yeah, totally. Cause I think actually that ties in, but I mean, I think Stoker himself, right. Is like a pretty interesting character, actually kind of similar to Emily Bronte is seem to be very secretive. I mean, I guess that's different from Emily is just like reclusive, but Stoker, anytime you read about his character, he's like, very secretive. It goes into a lot of detail of like, and he describes himself that way in diaries. Um, but he spent a lot of his childhood sick and confined. Um, and so you do see a lot of, I think in a lot of vampire literature, actually, uh, an idea of like sickness and confinement and, and spreading sickness um, and you know, yeah, you have like the idea like, okay, you're confined and the imagination might, you know, you might come up with great ideas, but also like you're trapped. And there's a lot of being trapped in Dracula. Um, so Grimm's, yeah, is also very interesting because there's lots of, just like Emily, um, theories about, you know, if he was actually gay um, and if a lot of this is about being in a closet, his relationship with Oscar Wilde, his relationship with Walt Whitman. Um, so there's a lot of theorizing behind the scenes of things that are unsaid and just like his general personal life of like supposedly a pretty sexless marriage. Um, yes, and close friendship with Oscar Wilde. And then at the end of his life, in incredibly awful indictment of um, any gay authors in England and how they all should be imprisoned. That was like oh, the last year of his God. life he said that. But this Dracula comes out two years after Oscar Wilde gets sent to Australia hmm. in like, you know, the huge, a giant court case for the time mm -hmm. um, for being gay. Um, so there is lots of like, oh, is there homoeroticism in Dracula? The relationship between Dracula and Jonathan. Um, yeah, lots of lots of theorizing. I don't know if that's very product productive. Again, death of the author there. But um, <laughs> it does seem to be a lot of Dracula does rest on both, I think, ideas about disease and sickness. And then also, um, Victorian repression, I, I think yeah. like pretty <laughs> off the bat. So yeah. like, and the conflating of um, sex and and illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. That, um, that's sort of what I was getting at when I was talking about like scientific discoveries play a big role in um, Gothic literature, especially later Gothic literature as you get more toward uh, the later half of the 19th century because science, particularly medicine, is advancing in a way where like a lot more ailments are getting names and um, like people, scientists and doctors are researching sicknesses and illnesses and actually like parsing through, okay, this germ causes this disease, this germ causes this disease. Mm -hmm. It's not just consumption. It's not just mm -hmm. like um, a fever. It's, it's, and specifically, um, there are, there's this discovery of sexually transmitted disease, diseases, and that is happening pretty much in the last two decades of the 19th century. Um, and Van Helsing in the, it's reflected in Dracula because Van Helsing is a doctor who is like, like right. discovering and researching blood diseases. Um, and he talks about syphilis and there's, that's a blood disease that is passed um, that is sexually transmitted, and there's this like sexual panic um, or extramarital sex sex panic, and to me that's like the symbol of Lucy is like yeah. Lucy is pretty incidental <laughs> in terms of plot, and mm -hmm. I think that she's specifically there to represent um, this, and it goes along with Victorian repression as well. Like she has extramarital she has many suitors and so there's kind of like this yeah. assumption and again she's also mysterious because her diary is not known I mean I think that there's kind of like I think that a reader could assume that Mina could assume that Lucy is having sex with 
like these three yeah. people. And it's just like, like the fact that she has three suitors makes her somehow promiscuous or like that's kind of the vibe mm-hmm. I get. And right. Go ahead. Versus like Mina, who is a very, um, who I think is also sort of a modern woman, right? She's like a working, she she's a school mistress. She seems to, I think she's an orphan. Like she comes from like lower means than Lucy does, but she's also sort of a new woman because she's a, she's working, um, but she's very loyal to Jonathan. I mean, that's mostly her fears throughout the whole novel. I, honestly, I was like, are you a little more worried for your friend Lucy? Um, but <laughs> mostly is like, where yeah. is Jonathan? Like, I, what is happening to Jonathan? Yeah. Um, so they kind of both are like, I feel like new women, but Mina is super the representation of innocence. Yeah. And um and Dracula like thirsts after that also yeah. that too. Yeah. And and then and Lucy being her foil is this like um uh presumably promiscuous person and then and then she gets sick and she gets the blood disease or whatever. She like sort of becomes a vampire. And so I think that um vampirism I think I'm sure that this is not a new thought. I don't think that this is like, I'm sure people have written essays about this, but I'm pretty sure that vampirism is the symbol for syphilis. And, um, Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it's, and, and therefore that inextricably links vampirism with lust and erotica, which is how we get to twilight. (laughs) 120 years later or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> I also I do think yeah and I do think having like the most knowledgeable person the hero sort of the yeah the person who holds all the cards the person who understands the most about vampires being a doctor um is like vital to the book and like to understanding Dracula and he sets forth all of these rules you know like it I always think it's really interesting. I was wondering, cause I feel like you're a little, you're a lot more versed in like vampire literature. <laughs> you're outing me. <laughs> vampire world. Uh-huh. Um, then I am, I'm not like a vampire nerd like you. Um, <laughs> but there's just, there's just so many rules with vampires. Um, yeah. And this book gets kind of nuts on the rules. Yeah, there's the like earth and basket, you know, like the earth and the coffins, there's the garlic, there's when they can enter the house, you know, like how many forms Dracula can take and why and like, yeah. Something that's interesting about um, the Coppola movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula, is um, that I just made a connection to now because I was thinking about how the sort of um, what makes a vampire and like the kind of the rules of like of outlining this monster um that gets really outlined in the movie uh and it's by the narrator there's a narr like even though coppola Mm. there's still like keanu reeves and winona are still narrating their characters diary entries but there there's an there's a narrator and which is interesting. yeah i think it's i think it's hopkins is the narrator is it supposed to be van helsing but they don't say it's I don't it's think not, so. Oh, like, it doesn't okay. say that it's Van Helsing, but yeah. I do, it is, I'm pretty sure it's his voice. Um, that's a really good point, that you still need to do a narration. Um, <laughs> also, as I was thinking about this more, sorry, I'm back on the sickness thing. There's a huge, well, one of Lucy's fiancés is a doctor. Um, in the Coppola, I think he's played by Richard E. Grant, I think that's his name, who's, like, my favorite in everything he appears in. But, um <laughs> shouts to Richard E. Grant Um, but (laughs) he is a doctor at an asylum um, which is like where Renfield is Um, and so there's also a connection with vampirism and um, meant like going insane uh, like and being institutionalized which um, you would happen yeah with syphilis yeah so there's and also all this a lot sort of, of heroin being prescribed. <laughs> <laughs> he gives it to everybody. One thing you can count on in all 
uh, late 19th century <laughs> literature and media is heroin like, everywhere. Take, take the opiate. Yeah. It's like, oh, uh, you're addicted to cocaine? Yeah, we can fix that with heroin. <laughs> it's almost like pharmaceuticals have been out to get us since the very beginning. Uh, what? <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, um, yeah, there's, there's like so much, well, I, I think that there are rules for, there's so many rules for vampires because again, that's also reflected in this like era of intense medical research being done mm -hmm. and like intensely trying to uh, scrutinize diseases, scrutinize germs. Um, and like you, and, and there's this very meticulous detail that outlines, uh, that outlines these diseases. And so therefore like a vampire is, is outlined in meticulous detail as well, because it's seen as like this, um, as a disease, albeit fictional, but, but kind of not fictional for sure. I mean, like I, I, now I'm pretty much just like convinced civilism is vampires. <laughs> well, the only thing you know, being that you don't live forever with civilism. <laughs> the opposite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one, uh, well, one also like thing about the, like drag reading Dracula as a text versus other, I think vampires is that Dracula really changes shape a lot. Um, and that is like a hallmark of Gothic literature is that like, boundaries are blurred, you know, like yeah. monster or man, you know, um, things change, things morph. And so he morphs all the time. And then you have rules that are to restrict the form of Dracula, yeah. right? Like to restrict his, this uncontrollable force, like a disease, you know, like a, an uncontrollable um, external thing happening to you. Um, so I think that, I think that fits with Gothic literature too. Like, yeah. And a lot of what? Well, I was just going to say, like, monstrosity um, being a part of monstrosity is such a huge, a huge part of Gothic literature. And like a lot of critical theory around monsters is, yeah, mm -hmm. you have to create the authors create, um, create something that is like indefinable. And that's what makes it scary. Um, because there's, you never know is is it a shadow or is it a ghost or is it a vampire or is it a werewolf um what is the effect of like the full moon on on whatever you know and so and yeah monsters are completely indefinable and that's what makes them monsters which i also this is again nothing new this is like a part of the scholarship on monsters and like the critical theory but like again in this era of really intense scientific classification there's um because mm. also darwin is is uh after after darwin there's then like the phylogeny <laughs> of yeah uh, that's a really good point things like there's like uh all living species get classified into something very specific and you and you get down into um into a taxonomy and everything has its place as you were like categorizing and then there are things that you just, and so it's it's very natural for humans to then be like, and, and artists, authors, to then be like, okay, well, so the really terrifying thing is something that can't be classified. And so then they start to, um, they start to, to do this. And then, and then of course, I think it's interesting, the progression of like, p things that are undead are always morphing and changing shape mm -hmm. they're always kind of shape-shifting mm -hmm. in what and in gothic literature you have like Wuthering Heights where it's like the ghost of Kathy and then you have vampires and then you get to Mary Shelley who is like the uh, like the humans stitched together from other several other right. humans um yeah this like a monster is something that is indefinable but also something that doesn't die mm -hmm. actually I was I've been thinking about this since we last talked about Weathering Heights. I think you, you described Weathering Heights to you as timeless. And at the time, and I think you also um, said Dracula to you was also timeless. At the time, to me, I was thinking timeless as in like 
it's not dated, it's still relevant, you know, like I can read this whenever and it's still like a, a, a good piece of literature, like a good text. Um, but then I was thinking of it like, oh, like maybe you met, or like maybe you can think about it as like exists out of time because they both are centralized. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because both of those books like are very, in fact, dated. They put dates within the book. You know, like there are right. the narrator dates um, books. They they read passages that have literal dates on them, right? So in, in one way, it's incredibly dated. It's like very, very specific. Um, but in this other way, it, it focuses on creatures that exist outside of time or like break the rules of time, like ghosts or vampires. And like, therefore, honestly, I think sometimes because it gives me the dates of when things are happening, but it gives them to me in a narration that like is a letter or is someone telling a story that happened 20 years before, but like to a person right now, it creates a quality of like existing out of time in some ways mm -hmm. and that it like it becomes sort of a legend versus like something that's happening at the present moment in the story mm -hmm. and it's something I can read as like at any time I don't know I've been thinking about that since you said it. I was like oh what is timelessness yeah <laughs> especially I mean, when you have creatures that are time undead yeah reverse oh, yeah are undead <laughs> and and eternal um yeah. And I, and yeah, I mean, I definitely meant timeless as in like, it will always be a good, uh, a good right. And like, and, and there's something, but like, this is interesting because, because I, I totally agree with you. There's these, these monsters are external to time. They are eternal. And, mm -hmm. um, and so they are without it and they are timeless. But then at the same time, you have something like, like vampire erotica or, um, or twilight. Yeah. <laughs> that like, or isn't twilight. <laughs> that isn't necessarily, <laughs> um, I, to me, doesn't have that timeless. I don't know. It's arguable. No. I mean, twilight is not my preference in terms of literature. However, however, twilight might prove to be timeless. Be and I say that because um because like TikTok uh <laughs> TikTok is really serving me a lot of Twilight talk right now I know but <laughs> well I know that I've been sending you stuff also you've but. been sending me stuff so I'm sure that, like whatever kind of spyware the algorithm is. knows yeah. yeah um there's uh, yeah but I, I'm just getting a lot of a lot of <laughs> Twilight talk and someone had posted a TikTok. I think I came across this um, like earlier this morning or last night. And they were just like, this showed up on my Netflix and like, are all of these mother effers? <laughs> they were like, are all these mother effers <laughs> really going through <laughs> it? Or like, what is going on? And the video was of uh, Netflix's top 10 across the, like across the country, across the US. And it was all fucking for, oops. Uh, <laughs> I, I think like, you can cut. <laughs> <laughs> Not on TV, Bethany. We'll just have to label it explicit, okay? Okay. Um, I already cussed like three times. Okay. <laughs> it was like, uh, it was all the Twilight movies were like top top 10. They were like number well, one they, through four. They all recently came back on Netflix. So and people, watching it. I yeah. think people are having a, yeah, like a, a they're like, you know what? We were really tough on these movies, but actually they're really fun to watch. Right, and 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 people, especially with Twilight Talk, people want to go viral on TikTok, or maybe they don't necessarily yeah. want to go viral, but like TikTok is the last sort of social media that allows for creative expression. Um, uh, Facebook is dead, Instagram is uh, dying a slow death. And, um, and yeah, like it's just the jokes are never ending. And like, there are so many TikTok trends specific to Twilight. Like, I know the the twerking to the Bella's lullaby is like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so people are just like, you know, Twilight talk out of this like irony of like just making fun of it. Um, that is why I think like it's revived people's interests in Twilight and they want to watch it. And so I think that it's going to yeah. prove to be timeless, even 
even if it's just out of like this ironic, let's make fun of it, jokey kind of sense. But my original point was there's something about <clears throat> Gothic literature in the 19th century. Like you're never going to be able to write another Frankenstein. You're never going to be able to write mm -hmm. another Dracula. And what is it? And, and, but like other literature about vampires keeps being made and it's not necessarily yeah. going to be timeless. So that's like a key that I don't really know. There's a key, there's some solution there. I don't have. Yeah, there is. I mean, of course there is like first of its kindness, right? Like Dracula is based on folklore, obviously, but of like, you know, compiling that together, but there is sort of something remarkable about any of the rem remarkable. There's that word. Uh, <laughs> um, remarkable about all of those books and that keeps trying to get imitated even now, which is kind of fascinating because you don't think that's something that would be written and would really have that much relevance nowadays. I do think, especially Dracula, that the characters are are well characterized, but a lot of them seem to be like archetypes. Like right. you could really like bend of like, okay, here's the American cowboy coming in to, you know, like mm -hmm. influencing English markets. And like, you know, like, there's a lot of like pretty easy to draw um, arrows of like, here's what's happening in society. Here's this character in Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I think there is like a quality to them that um, remains still mysterious, which is kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that it, hundreds of years, hundred years later, it still could be. And um, I guess that is, I guess that is the missing link sort of, is that what these authors are doing, they're um, in their very, I mean, from confinement or like societal, seclusion or whatever used to, mm -hmm. these authors Bronte and Stoker both have this um like they have intense observation of their society the intense observation of the world that they live in and then from there um they're creating these stories of like they're really observing like what is going on and they're sort of like watching the world from a macro perspective and then they're turning the phenomena of of their world into into characters and into a story. And maybe that is, maybe that is exactly what makes it, um, mm. what makes it timeless because it's like not super specific. It's not focused on like erotica plot line of like who slept with who. Um, and it's also not something that like, I don't know, something about Twilight, what I would say doesn't make it timeless, does not make it timeless is um, like it, it is super focused on plot and like focused on like battle between like old vampires yeah. who want like conservative vampires versus like <laughs> the Cullen family. No conservative vampires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and it's just like focused on like, okay, what's gonna happen next with Bella? Like, is Edward gonna break yeah. up with her? Is he gonna eat her? Like what's, what's I, I don't know. It's, it's very focused on plot and like the characters are um, not developed to respond to the world that they're living in. I don't think that Stephanie Meyer necessarily, I think that what she was focused on was a storyline, not necessarily focused yeah. on like, okay, what's happening in like, like the economic crash of 2008 is not represented. Right. It in fact, it feels but like- it could be in, and it's scary, yeah. In Forks, Washington, somehow is a bubble in which the rest of the world does not exist. You know, like it, it really does feel removed from from the world that they have no real connection. I feel like, I think Bella's mom, right, is probably her her connection to the outside world and Bella's mom's never in it. Um, yeah. She barely, you never see her talk to her mom mm -hmm. except for like the first book, I think. And then she's gone and then everything is so insular to a point where, like at Wuthering Heights, which has incredibly even more insular, yeah. um, plot and and characters still feels represent like it represents larger themes that are happening in the society it's being produced in and twilight seems like it's purposefully 
absent-minded to those things you know in fact so much so that it's like the reverse like the focus is on like the colon's wealth right versus anything else um yeah and all of their volvos and jeeps and all the cars (laughs) the amount of cars in them those books um I, and I was thinking, sorry, there's this quote uh, from, I think, one of Stoker's diaries um, before, a few years before Dracula was published. But it said, well, this is talking about himself. Will men ever believe that a strong man can have a woman's heart and the wishes of a lonely child? No Which reminded me... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which everyone's like, mm, uh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which reminded me of that very bizarre quote of Charlotte Bronte talking about Emily Bronte, which is like, this is a woman who's stronger than a man, but simpler than a child. Mm. And it's this sort of, I don't know, this posturing, this putting the author as both like naive and innocent but also maybe gender bending, you know, in like some sort of meta, like metaphorical way. It's hard to tell. Um, but there is like this idea that they don't belong in a, a society. Mm-hmm. They don't belong in the current society that they're in. Right. Which but and can see it very well. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and that is, um, that's also reflected. Yeah. They can see it very well because they're specifically very outside of it. They're secluded from it, um, voluntary or not. They're they're secluded. They have seclusion, and um, that not belonging also maybe uh, adds to this like narrator theme that's mm-hmm. going on, like having a narrator, um, because like they can identify. They can identify with that with that outside voice of just like the the person who is looking in. Um, from the outside Um, and I think that maybe something that's contradictory um, and this is why it's hard to sort of parse out um, or hard to put your finger on it is that like these these pieces of literature are timeless because they are of their time because they are representative of their time and um and if you try to and like the authors and the narrators telling the story are outside whereas like in twilight um i think also on twilight talk someone said that bella is a self-insert character and like stephanie meyer definitely is bella and so it's just like the narrator and the storyteller is not doesn't have an observational view um, is like definitely just like telling her story from like her perspective. Um, no, I think, and I think actually Bella tries to position herself as like someone who's like not like every other girl. Um, you know, like <laughs> she's different. Um, but <laughs> but in fact, she's like the most norm core person that could right. possibly exist. In fact, right. she's so norm core that you're like, do you? Do you have a personality? Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and she is very much just like, there's nothing yet like transgressive about Bella in any way. Mm-hmm. In fact, she's like, she moves into a small town. Everybody wants to get to know her. Like everybody wants, is excited about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that doesn't go away. You know, she doesn't yeah. become an outsider. People like her. Yeah, yeah. So that, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess that is like a big, a big part of Gothic literature too, is that like there is no, um, the only, like it's atmospheric, it's vibey and, um, and there's a level of like, and there, there are monsters, there's like eternal, external to time elements Mm -hmm. and then there's also this element of like being an outsider and being and like watching what's happening and defining what exactly is scary about it all of this to say i've actually never read frankenstein so like i wonder if i haven't either fits fits this too i think it kind of does but i don't know certainly about fear of or reckoning with science and um 
and a new invention, obviously. Um, but I do also believe that there is a lot of outsiderness, both from Frank, Dr. Frankenstein and his monster, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to remember how it's also the narration of Frankenstein and if that doesn't involve diary entries too. I think it might. I think it, yeah. I've never, I've only seen the movie with Helena Bonham Carter and what's his face, face nice. Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Um, Sir Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> but I think that it uh, is diary, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who plays, um, you know, the monster? I'm saying it right. It's Frankenstein's the man. <laughs> <laughs> because I believe there's one with um, my boy Robert De Niro as the monster <laughs> really oh my god wait what I, I think so let me find it sorry I Frankenstein De Niro 1994. That is the same one. Oh my one. god. Oh my god. Wait, Robert De Niro is Frankenstein the monster. Frankenstein. I don't know if you can see that in the glare. No, you can't, but yeah. De Niro. Oh my god. You know that I love. Yeah. He's your man. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see him play <laughs> Frankenstein. Why is He's the only American. It's a very British movie. And, and De Niro. Maybe they're trying to tell us something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. I yeah, I um interesting. I'm on the Wikipedia page of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Okay, that's also another thing that's funny is like with all these the movie adaptations of these um uh gothic lit is like bram stoker's dracula mary shelley's frankenstein um yeah I, it is like um we're trying to get back to the original like to the authentic because they've been made over so many times retold and retold and retold again yeah until they become twilight <laughs> um whoa okay so mary shelley Okay, this comes out um, in 1818, by the way. Yeah. And yeah, she's the earliest of these three. Yeah. And I didn't... Okay, this, like... Yeah, I seriously have not... No, okay. Uh, it's called The Modern Prometheus. <laughs> it's Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus as part of Mary Shelley's title, which I didn't know, um, hmm. which is interesting. I mean, to me, that's just, mm -hmm. like, again, this, like, scientific discovery um yeah the prominence of scientific discovery playing playing huge roles in this and then I was gonna say something else lost my train of thought um oh Mary Shelley wrote the vampire except it's spelled I think it's Mary Shelley v-a-n or maybe it's oh. something different uh and that's considered oh Is it no it's the thing that like allegedly inspired um, it, it inspired it's v-a-m-p-y-r-e the vampire okay john william polidori and um it was 1819 um wow it Getting was freaky up there in the early 18th 19th century pa oh right okay polidori mary shelley <laughs> lord byron and percy shelley all had a literary contest right. This is the contest. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I didn't realize that that the vampire came out of that contest too. Okay. Yeah. Right. He of who could write the scariest, right. the scariest yeah. story in the weekend? Obviously, Mary won. But uh... <laughs> uh, the first story successfully to fuse the disparate elements of vampirism into a coherent literary genre. That's what hmm. a scholar named Christopher Freeling said. 
Interesting. I've read The Vampire. It's very short. It's like a hundred pages, maybe. Um, and it's not interesting. <laughs> Is it scary? It's not scary. Well, I don't know. It's hard for me to define what scary is because um, in terms of like something that was written so long ago, 170 years or whatever, 180, like it's not, I I am not threatened by someone coming to suck my blood because like blood diseases have largely been solved. I would be gothic literature in this day and age in 2021 is um is a monster that comes to a demon that comes to possess you through a respiratory disease maybe (laughs) Mm. Mm. yeah you know i actually am really curious because um i've seen some people talk about this recently but a lot of the recent vampire shows like tv shows i'd say of the last 20 years are set in the South or mm. have um, a Southern vampire. Like Twilight has one. They all serve in the Confederacy. I don't know why that always has to be a part of it, but um, <laughs> why can't you get an American revolution? I, very confusing to me. Anyways, and I wonder if they're going for like a literal like Southern Gothic, which you know like a, is a slightly more recent spin on Gothic tradition, mm-hmm. um, or well, in some things I think like in True Blood there is some play on like the there's the occasional play on vampirism and HIV. Um, which I would say probably is the last, yeah, like that, like of blood infections, like that, yeah. that's your last frontier, your last fear. Um, but with the other ones, there is really no, there's not that same um, great fear. Sorry, I don't know why I brought the Southern, as, Southern into it, but it is really bizarre to me. Yeah. <laughs> why are they all send this out? There's True Blood. Vampire Diaries. Whoa. Um, they're sent in the South, and one of the vampires in that served in the Confederacy. And in Twilight, one of the vampires served in the Confederacy, seemingly willingly enlisted. Great. And you're just like, uh, uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that is really interesting. And it makes me think. I sort of like zoned out, went on a tangent to think about like medieval, because like people, (laughs) yeah, like why? (laughs) Well, why? Southern, Trulon. Like this, this geographical site specificity is, is really bizarre. And like why Southern and like, what about it is, what about the civil war is like, so interesting, whatever. And I've personally, I've been on like right now in my personal life, I've been reading, um, a lot about New Mexico history and um, colonial New Mexico. And there was a, and there was a massive, massive witch trial in Northern New Mexico in Abiquiu, which is now unfortunately just like, just known for being Georgia O'Keeffe's place of residence. Yeah, why are people super hell bent on like exploring the history of Southern like Confederacy soldiers or like American mm-hmm. Revolution soldiers, whatever. I don't, yeah, it's very, I find it very odd. But like, you want to set a United States TV show in, with vampires. You obviously, like most of these shows, want their leads to be white. Um, so they're going to set them in a, a, some sort of colonial um, history. And they go to the South. True Blood, at least, it's like the act, that's like a main part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Not saying they did it well, but it is a main part of the plot. Um, why the Vampire Diaries is just mind-boggling to me. The inclusion of it in Twilight is also like, why? You know, like, what was the purpose of this? 
Stephanie what is the obsession? Yeah. I do think that there is like some sort of idea of like genteel Southern gentlemen that like they want to use and it's gross and yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that it ultimately comes down to like nationalist propaganda, like the United States, uh, American authors. And I think that this might not even be conscious, like a conscious decision, but I, um, but it's just like inculcated in, in people's heads. Um, like, I mean, America is like the first, like, whatever. Um, America is very nationalist <laughs> and yeah. very much like nationalist propaganda infiltrates everything about like being raised here. And so it's just like, you have to tell the story from the perspective of the East Coast, Southeast Coast colonialists. And you people yeah. do not think about what happened on this continent beforehand because it, w- because it was Spain and it wasn't it was Spain and Portugal and it wasn't. Um, it wasn't the people who finally like founded the country or whatever. Yeah. Well, actually bringing it back to Dracula about nationalism is that many, so Stoker's Irish. um, And so many people also like, obviously there's this like larger, like fear of Eastern Europe um, with Dracula, right? They go very far out of their way. Uh, in Jonathan's um, writings and his diaries, being very afraid of Romania and everything that's in it, then eating paprika for the first time. Um, <laughs> Such an English thing. And he's like, I had a soup with paprika in it. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> oh, he's like, I'll get the recipe for Mina. He says that and then it makes me, it cracks me up. Anyways. Um, <laughs> Stoker's Irish, um, so there is also lots of people I've read into it about like the Irish infiltration or like this fear of Irish rebellion. And so I do think vampires, but also particularly Dracula just lends itself so well to um, reading it as um, like a political text as being so entrenched in in the conflicts of the society it was written in mm-hmm. but a lot of nationalism in there yeah that's for and sure. of course like in all this isn't anything specific to gothic literature but just uh but any kind of literature that deals with supernatural whatever science fiction it's always othering and oh yeah there will always be a nationalist i guess i i think that yeah you can't really I don't think literature uh, has escaped nationalist tendencies. <laughs> I guess, no you know, like I, that's just like a thing. That oh, but like even to, like into Twilight, you're saying like there's still yeah. those. Yeah. 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 And, and even, um, yeah, yeah. It's just, there will always be, I think that people underestimate how much, how much propaganda, um, infiltrates the subconscious throughout all literature. I I think that there are very few books that actually like tackle it and try to not other other people. This is silly. This is silly. And like, I kind of, but I do think that the Lemony Snicket books are something that (laughs) (laughs) I will forever. I I think that- Of all the things that I could have predicted you were about to say. Not Lemony Snicket. <laughs> I um, I will make fun of anybody who is a diehard Lemony Snicket fan, while also me being a diehard Lemony Snicket mm. fan. I th- I'm like absolutely obsessed with a series of unfortunate events, and um, and yeah, I uh, internally give myself shit for that all the time. But Daniel what, Handler, why? I don't know because it's just like. It's just so, talk about being like, I'm not like other girls. Like it's, I felt like the series of unfortunate events kids were always just like, I am not reading Harry Potter because I am waiting for the eighth book of the series of unfortunate events to come out. Um, I feel like there was that vibe or maybe I'm just like projecting because that's how I felt, but. I do remember that. (laughs) I read um, a series of unfortunate events. It's better. I'm highbrow. (laughs) I'm a highbrow eight-year-old. Me at the Scholastic Book Fair buying (laughs) Lemony Snicket books and thinking that I'm better than everybody else. I'm like, you got the I Spy book? 
Um, <laughs> but when I read Lemony Snicket, and also I love Daniel Handler, his his books as as himself um, that he writes as himself are incredible too. Like I think that he is one of the like he's a very singular author in contemporary times. I think that he's brilliant. And then as Lemony Snicket, I reread a series of unfortunate events maybe like five years ago. And I was just like, oh, holy shit. He's actually like really tackling, um, like he's really trying to take on these tropes of um, like science fiction or horror or Gothic. Like, oh, he's, he, and I, I would have to, I guess, yeah. Cause it's been like five years since I read the whole series again. Um, I would have to like read it again to pick out specific examples, but there are instances where he like actively goes against this othering and like mm. fear of the other is, well, the, the Baudelaire orphans are sort of othered by everybody else. And so I think that he is um, really trying hard to like resist that. Anyway, that's another soapbox. Well, maybe we can actually, do another no. episode about series of Because <laughs> I, I was just going to say that if I remember correctly, I haven't read those since I didn't read all of them, but, um, and it's been a while, but the villain in that count Olaf is sort of a Gothic. Yeah. Mysterious villain, sort of almost Dracula. He's a count. Um, <laughs> Dracula. Uh, so that's interesting that then, instead of leaning that into this like scary man who you can never know, they sort of reverse it. Mm-hmm. Cause the kids are kind of like cursed, right? Yeah, they are cursed. And uh, Count Olaf's villainry, well, they're, they're cursed while also being very blessed. I mean, they inherit the wealth of mm-hmm. their parents um, and the villainry of Count Olaf is not defined by any kind of like national traits or like ethnic background. The villainry is he's like a, he's out for money and he's like a capitalist. And so, okay. um, and so yeah, Lemony Snicket is villainizing him for his greed, um, which is interesting. And so, and sort of like, despite the Baudelaire orphans being blessed with like the binary of blessed and cursed, despite the orphans being blessed with inheritance, they are cursed by capitalist greed. And, um, and I do think that I, you know, unfortunately the, the fucking Jim Carrey film adaptation was so oh, bad that it just like it. kind of ruined, it kind of ruined a series of unfortunate events, I think. Um, I mean, not for me personally, but just like from a, from a perspective of like larger, <laughs> Uh, whatever. And then also like the popularity of Harry Potter kind of ruined it. Anyway, um, yeah. I have so many feelings. Uh, but I do think that a series of unfortunate events is similarly timeless because Count Olaf is such an archetype of capitalist greed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we can talk. Oh my God. We can talk about that later. Uh, I also, I remember like in college too, I had like reread specifically the 13th book, the last one in the series. And I was just like, oh my God, this is like, uh, I was like, he's like making an argument against Immanuel Kant and knowledge. And, and I, I was such a, I was such a freak. <laughs> oh, this is your anti-Kantian argument. Finally, Lemony, I've been waiting for it. It's also very like anti, I mean, the uh, aside from like my stupid ideas about Kant, it's also actually very anti-fundamentalist. It's anti hmm religious ideology um yeah reading it as an adult is is interesting for another episode maybe another series. another episode another unfortunate season <laughs> okay i don't know <laughs> i love it gotta do it we'll do like yeah unfortunate kids the unfortunate series any Dickens novel. <laughs> and that's it. That's a wrap. Sad, sad kids. Sad kids. I feel like, isn't Elena Ferrante kind of sad kid too? I, I haven't yeah. read, I haven't read that whole series. Well, that actually also is a lot about, um, 
it's really interesting. It's like an interesting portrait of post-war Italy. Yeah. Because they're really poor. Yeah. And so it is a lot about like capitalism and money and um, fascism and yeah. So it is also about sad kids. All of the kids are sad in that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Sad girl syllabus does sad kids. Uh, (laughs) Okay, well, I guess we digressed a lot. That's what this is for. Sad girls don't stay on topic. (laughs) Hashtag sad girls don't stay on topic. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm sorry. All right. I really well, sound old when I say things like that. <laughs> well, I guess the we will continue our season on uh, gothic literature with more about what are we going to talk about next time? I actually don't know. Oh, great! I think so we it'll need be to a decide. surprise. It'll be a surprise <laughs> for everybody. Cool. All right. Well, uh, signing off.